everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking again with Patrick Lockwood. Patrick is a psychologist who deals mainly with uh, addiction. He's also got a book out on fear, and he's a good follow on Twitter. Uh, he's one of the more reasonable people I know, and he tries to stay out of all the insanity. I don't know how he does it. Hey, Patrick, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to see you again. Yeah. So how have you been keeping with COVID? Well, I've been I've been working, so um, I don't really have many chances to worry about it because I'm so busy actually just treating patients, essentially. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Speaking about that, yeah. like I, I I was hoping you know I was going to talk to you about uh, I guess I think I measured getting untethered from reality, but speaking mm -hmm. of the COVID thing, like, are you seeing an uptick in patients, or has it been steady, or how's that been going? Uh, so you know of the. Well, the two places I currently work, one is a, a treatment center I run, and the other is um, um, this kind of private practice office you see me in currently. And, you know, there was a, a pretty stark increase in the private practice office, but the treatment center work, I mean, it's very consistent. Substance use disorders are a very consistent phenomenon. And I know there's been an uptick a little bit, but it's definitely the case that, um, you know, a lot more people are seeking out mental health services nowadays, definitely, at least in the last nine months. Yeah. No, I mean, I just figured that this, like, being locked away for this long must have some effect on people. Yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> I mean, isolating is hard for everyone. We are not built to isolate. We are a social species, and mm -hmm. I don't know any mammal that's good with isolating for extended periods of time. I know. Even, okay, I know a little bit about wildlife and stuff because my dad used to hunt and used to like watch wildlife shows. So even solitary animals like tigers, which are almost always solitary, they still seek out companionship, you know, for mating or whatever. Right? Like that, you need. Yeah. Anyway, like I said, I was speaking to you and I said, you know, we'll talk about getting untethered from reality. And mm -hmm. this is one of the things like I've noticed since I, I think I've mentioned this to you before. When I came back from Afghanistan, one of the first things I said was. We're, we're going to come towards an overcorrection. Like things are going mm -hmm. so far mm -hmm. that we're going to have an overcorrection. I thought maybe Trump being elected in was an overcorrection to wake people up to say, you know what, maybe we need to get away from some of this identity stuff. Then I thought maybe Charlottesville was that. You know? mm -hmm. No, that wasn't it. I thought maybe when, you know, people stormed the Senate for Kavanaugh's hearing, I thought maybe that might wake <laughs> someone up. Right. And then you had everything that went on this summer and then you had, you know, stop the steal and all that. And then I don't know what the correct term for what it is that happened at the Capitol, because some people are saying insurrection, but some of the stuff that's coming out, it looks more like, for lack of a better term, idiots who thought they were going to, you know, take back their election. Whatever. They, I don't think these guys, I don't think anything was really planned. I mean, I know that they found a couple of bombs at the RNC and the DNC, and that obviously oh, wow. had to be planned. Uh, there were pipe bombs. I mean, I don't want to belittle it. Like I worked in Afghanistan. Hmm. I know what a damage IEDs can do, but I mean, that was obviously planned, but I mean, I don't think that there was a cohesive plan. Right. Like all the stuff that's coming out now, you listen to these people they're they were completely out of touch with reality. Mm -hmm. My problem with, okay, I have a huge problem with those people and I've got a big problem with white supremacy. And like I said, I've always been worried about this overcorrection because I said, we're losing some touch with reality. I still focus on the left, A, because I think I always considered myself on the left. 
Um, I mean, I always espoused enlightenment values, and that used to be a left thing. Uh, but this focus on identity politics, uh, some of the trans stuff that's coming out now, mm. you know, let's just, okay, the COVID and the riots, you know, they were saying in the States, you know, COVID's really bad. I'm not, and I'm not trying to slight anything from COVID. Like COVID's really bad. It might be dangerous mm-hmm. for you to go vote in person, vote by mail, mm-hmm. because standing in line for that amount of time is dangerous. And that, that's logical. It makes sense. But the same people yeah. were saying that, you know, like the New England Medi- Medi- uh, Journal of Medicine, the American Medical Association, uh, hospitals. I think there was 500 doctors that said, go out and protest. There were doctors and nurses from hospitals that were going out and joining the protest. And they were saying, well, you know, racism is a worse virus than COVID. Mm. Now, you know, that is detached from reality. I, if you want to, mm. I don't want to, I don't want to say left or right in this aspect. I mean, if you look at the Academy mm. and you look at media, they were where we went to get sense of the world. So, you know, when, right. you know, someone right. in a lab coat comes on the news and gives you some, you know, science information, there's right. a stamp of authority. Right. Now, when you have these people telling you that there's no problem for, men who transgender transition into women to play in women's sports or that it's okay mm. that they go to prison or like the COVID thing. This is breeding ground for conspiracy theories. This, I mean, this is where Trump can say, see, they're trying to make you a vote, vote by mail to steal the election from me. Now, you know, that has more logic to me than a racially conscious virus that won't attack people who are going out to protest black lives matter. I mean, right. You know, so like this untethering from reality, like, Hmm. you know, that's not good for us. And like, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So let's talk about that because that's really important. And I think one of the best uh, consistent voices about like virus risk and things like that have been Brett and Heather Weinstein. They've done a really great job of talking about um, transmissibility and updated evidence and things of that nature. And, you know, something that's really important when it comes to, like, the concept of reality and reality testing, right, is being able to be grounded in in the correct frame is what you're really talking about, right? Because, like, when you do a mental status exam, you want to see how someone's oriented, so when you say oriented, what does that mean? Well, are they oriented to time, place, and person, for instance? Those are three things we always look for. So do you know who you are? Do you know what time and history it is, what year it is, for instance? And you know what place you're in, right? And you could say there's kind of a similar analog for these kind of social realities, if you want to say that. So are they oriented to kind of like the reality of where you're at right now? Because that and so the analog for like psychiatry and psychology is that's oriented to, to place, right? So many of these people are out of touch with what place they're in, right? They don't know the current situation that they find themselves in because what they're caught up in is something personal or ideological or whatever it is. So they're not orienting to the data about the real world around you. They're orienting to uh, a circumscribed idea about how things ought to be, Right. So they're living in the ought world, not the is world, so to speak. And there is a lack of reality testing for a lot of people, I think, when it comes to the what place are you in situation. They may be oriented to person fairly well. They may be oriented to time fairly well. But what I would argue is they're not oriented to time historically. So like, I think a lot of people lack 
the historical context for what is reality right now, right? So when you talk about like the, the racism is more deadly than the virus comparison, that shows a dramatic lack of understanding history in my opinion. And what I mean by that is not to say that racism is a little thing now. That's not what I mean. Racism is a problem, you know? It's, it's a, prejudice as a general rule is a problem, right? And there are many thoughtful people trying to address that from a variety of angles. To compare prejudice, a complex psychosocial phenomenon to a virus is a complete lack of reality testing because the two phenomena cannot be equated. They're not on the same historical, sociological time scale. They don't, they don't fit into a, a similar box by which you can compare things scientifically. So making that is just a rhetorical, that, that statement is a rhetorical move and should be treated as such and be dismissed by most people because rhetorical moves should be dismissed because they're not really reflective of data, they're reflective of um, a socio-political goal, not a reality of something, if that makes sense. And that's the problem we face, is people are more interested in rhetoric and socio-political goals than they are interested in data, because the data tells a much more complex story about the world than fits into a McDonald's-like advertisement about racism, about the virus, about whatever, right? Like it's very complex, the virus, the, the number of people that die, the type of people that die, the type of situations where you're most likely to be infected, for instance, being in enclosed spaces for long periods of time. These kinds of things are complex to discuss, right? And to actually have that kind of discussion requires a good reality testing, requires understanding yourself in the context of what all the data is. And what we know, what we don't know. And unfortunately, there's a lot we still don't know about this virus, even being 11 months into it or whatever, studying it. Yeah. No, no, I, I get that. And like, that's, that's where my biggest thing with, you know, I'm going to say academia and the media, because and when I include the media, I'm not saying that there's, you know, Fox News is great and CNN is bad. I, I don't trust any of them. They're all, yeah. they've all got their narrative and they're all pushing it, you know, mm -hmm. and so we're living yeah. in, you know, two or three different realities right now. You know, the, the people who think, you know, you have on CNN, you have Don Lemon saying, oh, Antifa, the name says anti-fascist and, you know, Fox News saying everything is a communist ploy from the Democrats, you know, and then whatever other stuff in the middle of like, we're losing our sense of a shared, a shared frame of reference. Well, what, what I would, what I would argue though, mm -hmm. is that we've always been living in multiple realities, but we were more willing to share a frame of reference at one point. Yeah. I was speaking to someone about this recently. It was uh, Razib Khan. I don't know if you know him. He's a yeah. scientist. Okay. Yeah. And we were talking yeah. about this and it was, you know, around 9-11 is when I would say that the the media spin, the narrative went from having the facts shape the narrative to having the narrative shape the facts. It was around 9-11 that that happened. And I think more and more so it's here are the, you know, here's some facts. How can I massage them to make it fit my narrative? I.e. racism was worse than COVID or, 
you know, they're telling you to mail in the ballots because they're going to steal the election. You know, both of these things are fabrications and they're, and they are both going to cause harm in some way or another. Yeah. Uh, well, it, yes, I, I, I think we overestimate that harm a little bit because I think that even though systemically there is harm because we promote narrative over, over data, right? That's the way I would phrase it. Because I think reality is a very loaded phrase and philosophy Twitter is going to get their panties in a bunch whenever they hear this. So to, to be more precise, I would say the narrative over data is the debate we're having right now. And we're less interested in sharing a narrative about the data and then being cherry picking data to promote a narrative, right? And that's what I think has shifted a lot, especially since 9-11, because that was a pivotal moment in world history, but especially in the United States where the narrative machines are, are housed, you know? Yeah, I know that's that they're all coming from, well, I shouldn't say all coming from here, but you know, UK has its fair share of weird media. If you follow some of the UK stuff, uh, but no, I mean, like the narrative-driven stuff. And again, I focus on the left because that's where I think I'm from, type of thing. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, you know, I've seen I've, I've seen people um, like Nick Wolfinger, and I'm trying to think of who else. Maybe Noah Bloom. I could have that name wrong. And I'm not trying to pick, pick these people out to say, oh no, there's you know plenty of right wing in the in the campuses. But when you look at some of the work of like Height and Lukyanov. If you're looking at, I think it was in the humanities, it was a 17 to one ratio of who voted Democrat, who voted Republican. And that was back in, you know, 2016 or something like that. So, I mean, you are getting one way of looking at things and you're not. So, I mean, take a, take an example of a Ben Shapiro who says, I'll oh, just go there, just fill out your things, but don't listen to them. You know, so someone like Ben Shapiro went to Harvard law critical race theory came out of Harvard. And I know, you know, I don't like that stuff, but that was all, no, but I mean, it is one of these things that creates a narrative and it, it creates a really bad one as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the right was where you had the evangelical Christians. You had a lot of that kind of stuff there. And that's, I mean, religion is a narrative creating machine anyways. Yeah. And if you're, te- if you're telling these people that all that matters is narrative, I mean, you know, I look at people like Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk because they're a bit younger than Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Uh, look at some of the new young people coming out on the right. There's not much difference between them and you know whatever social justice warriors, whatever you want to call them. The, yeah. It's just the position they pick is different, but they both play off the narrative. I'm, I'm like, if you don't fix the education system, if you don't fix where that's coming from, I mean, you can, you know, they can have that war on terror and take out all the QAnon and all the MAGA people and whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you don't fix now, it's K through twelve, and if you don't fix that and the edu- and the universities, you're just going to have a whole stream of these people coming out continuously. Sure, and I think, you know, I think it's I think it's more endemic and widespread than even the education system. I think the problem we face is a general lack of trust in each other. Where the pandemic has certainly amplified times a thousand in many ways, right? I think if we were in non-pandemic times, whatever happened at the Capitol the other week probably would not have happened because there would be more relative freedom, more relative emotion regulation. And 
they wouldn't feel the need to protest as strongly. I, I, I could be wrong about that. It's just a prediction. But I think we don't trust each other because we're, we're constantly seeing the world as this consistently confrontational space. And the problem with like the CRTs mm -hmm. of the narrative machine world are that they promote conflict over cooperation from the jump, which is true that humanity and mammals in general do operate in a conflict or conflictual kind of attitude in many cases, right? But the other fundamental driving force for all mammals is cooperation. So something that we've lost is a baseline sense of how do we cooperate? And that's not just an education problem. That's also a media problem. That's also a political problem. I mean, if I had my way, we would ax all of the, um, all of the, um, not mainstream media, but what legacy media, all of them would be wiped off the face of the earth and politicians would not be able to do anything in silos anymore. That would be my wish, because what would happen is we would have to have more cooperation as a general rule. Not to say that that would fix anything because the government in the United States is highly corrupt in terms of lobbying, in terms of um, the different subsidies that they produce and, and all these different things that are greed-based corruption, the military industrial complex, all these things, which is my soapbox I'm going to avoid. But generally speaking, we can't magically get rid of corruption. But what we can do, which I think will be impactful, is work on the importance of cooperation across ideological divides. And we don't see a lot of people doing that. We see a lot of people continuing to promote conflict over cooperation. And the rebuttal I get from people all over the spectrum, the left, the right, the middle, libertarian, whatever, conspiracy folks, is that if we don't fight, we're going to lose our values or we're going to lose important ground. And the sad fact is, is that, you know, and this is probably because I'm a clinician and not, uh, not a rhetorical, uh, you know, master. So I'm not going to say it well. But as a clinician, I know for a fact, if you look at like evidence-based theories for helping promote behavior change, like motivational interviewing, the more you do things that promote resistance, the less the person changes. So my job as a clinician is to remove obstacles to cooperation, right? That is what I do for a living seven days a week, basically speaking. So my job then when I talk about these issues is to talk about what are the obstacles to cooperation? So in a motivational interviewing sense, how do we roll with the resistance and allow people to kind of find their intrinsic motivation to cooperate? That's what I'm interested in. And I think that will be the solution across education, across the government, but especially on social media. One thing I am dead set on doing on social media is talking to anyone and everyone except for pineapple pizza people. And, <laughs> and, I will talk to anyone and everyone. If you hate me, if you love me, if you agree with me, if you disagree with me, if you're pro CRT, anti CRT, I will talk to you about anything because that is the spirit with which we solve the major problems. If we can get a grassroots movement of cooperation, despite our differences and what we find detestable about each other, that will help. But I don't think people are willing because they're too fearful, which is why I wrote that book. Yeah. Too fearful. Because they think they're going to lose important ground, but I don't know if you disagree with that. Okay, I first of all, I th this. Okay, I've used the term. We have to fight 
this stuff in education. And I don't mean like fight it, but I, when I say fight it, like I see a lot of parents, uh, there's a lot of legal action coming for parents against individual oh, schools. Yeah. So oh, I'm like, yeah. okay, fight it in court because this is, you know, it's against the civil rights code, what they're doing in some of the schools. Um, you know, there's one in San Diego where they were telling the teachers that uh, the white teachers were spirit killing the black kids. I'm like, you know, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, that was the training that they were giving the teachers. You know, uh, okay, that that is not helpful. So yes, fight that yeah. in court. Sure. There's le there's legal recourse, and when I say I, I don't want fighting in streets, and okay, like I said, I I made my you know opinions about critical race theory and things like that very open. And there are people on Twitter, and I've said straight out, like you know what you're saying is racist, but at the same time, like. I will sit down and I'll talk with that person, but I want to be upfront with them. I'm saying, this is what I feel of your views. You know, if you want to listen to that and you want to change my mind and I'll tell you why I think that, because I don't want to go in saying, okay, we're all going to be buddy, buddy. And because I think at this point we need to say that, okay, I disagree with your views. And I mean, you know, when I hear someone say, I don't want to say names or anything. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, they're, uh, integrated black folk and then he list, lists off like people like john mcwhorter and camille foster and you know because they don't really know what it is to be black i'm like i'm sorry but that's racist that's incredibly racist and you know i'll talk to you about that but i want you to know that that's where i'm coming from i'd like to be open yeah. and honest with someone about that it's not so much confrontational it's just this is i think this is where this conversation needs to happen now well again i think it depends upon your goal right so if your goal is to stake your position clearly and make your position known, yeah, calling something that you consider racist, racist makes sense because that's what everyone does. What I'm arguing and what I said earlier was I think we need to shift our goals because I think for the most part, if you have any length of time on these platforms and you're debating with people, people kind of already know your position for the most part. So I don't think you need to stake your claim very much. So I, I generally, and I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying for, for me and the way I'm oriented towards these problems is I'm a, I'm very cautious about labeling what have you, because that will promote defensiveness, right? Yeah. That's my concern is, and, but again, my goal might be different than yours, right? Cause my goal is, I want to show you what it's like to cooperate despite egregious differences, you know? Yeah. Okay. And I will, I, I'll, this is, I'm going to go way off topic, like cooperating, even though you disagree. Uh, I worked in war zones. Yeah. Okay. You have a goal to get done. Now you're living and working with the people you're, you're sleeping in the same tents, you know, you're eating in the same dining halls, whatever. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are, I worked with on bases that we despised each other. Yeah. Well, we had a common goal of getting that job done. Yeah. And so while we were at work, you know, differences left at the door, we do our job yeah. and then, you know, we walk out of the office and whatever he, you know, that person will go sit somewhere else in the dining hall. I'll sit the other end and we won't talk, you know, there is a way to do that. And I have no problem with the cooperation like that, but Hey, I, I mean, I might not start off with someone saying, okay, you're a racist, but I might start off with someone saying, okay, what you're espousing is racist. You know, like not that they are a racist, but what you're espousing is racist. And, yeah. you know, um, if I want to bring up facts, like, okay, let's the Black Lives Matter, you know, the oh, black people are being hunted down by police. I mean, okay, 
if you actually look at the facts, that's not true. If you look at the numbers, you look at the facts, there was another study that just, just came out within the last month. And this was, I think, one of the better ones done in the last little while. And it showed that for homicides and violent crimes, it's under-policed, but because of the amount of police they have to have in those neighborhoods for homicides and violent crimes, those police are then left to go after shoplifters, you know, you know, dime bag drug dealers on the corner and things like that. So for those little smaller infractions, they're over-policed in those neighborhoods. But you can't look at the over-policing and say, aha, racism. You know, mm-hmm. it's, so that's like, like I said, I mean, you know, I will tell someone that I think what you've said is racist. Maybe I shouldn't say I told them, okay, you're a racist, whatever. That's maybe that's wrong. But like, you know, that, like that thing with integrated blacks, that is all, you know, that's an awfully racist way of talking. I mean, that's going back to like old school racists calling black folk uppity for acting like they're betters, right? That's, that's what it was. Um, I mean, I'll give you another example. There was a, a, a Republican candidate in Baltimore. Um, I, I think her name was Kim Classic. And she started writing, she lost, and right around, I think it was just before the new year, um, she just did a series of tweets saying, so-and-so is married to a Chinese person, so-and-so is married to a Chinese person, so-and-so is dating a Chinese person. Now, that's racist. I mean, there is some, you know, why are you doing that? Oh, because of COVID or whatever. Or are you questioning their loyalties to the United States because they're married to a Chinese person? Oh, wow. At the same time, the left is freaking out about this. You know, she's a Republican, so Democrats left are freaking out about her being racist. But coming out from the Democratic side, at least at the state local levels in some places, oh, well, Asians, like in Washington State now, Asians are considered white because if you consider them white, then you know the majority of the population of the school is white mm. because 75% are Asian. So mm. if the left starts doing that, like... You know, I'm not going to be lectured by Democrats now about how she was racist or what she said was racist. Like that, there's like, I want to fight back against, like, I want to be able to call that out and I want people to be able to call that out. But, you know, and there's a lot of both sides on this. There's like, you know, I don't want to, like, that's why we can compare, you know, what each side is doing. But I want to fix the left because right now I think the left is in control of academia and left is in control of media more or less. And that's where, credentialed conspiracy theories come from you know yeah covid is a worse uh virus than or sorry racism worse virus than covid that's coming from the new England general medicine that's credentialed that's you know and that's a conspiracy theory you know that's yeah. that's nutty so they're like oh well the scientists tell me that so like i want to fix that because then you you can get away from that like i want to be able to have i want to be able to have a reasoned argument for people who say so-and-so is married to a Chinese person. Um, sorry, I'll just ramble for a little bit more. Like Parler right now. Parler was kicked off Amazon. They went to a Russian server. It was an article in the Washington Post. Oh my God, they're looking at Russian connections with, the, with what happened on Capitol Hill because see, they're on a Russian server. And some Democratic congressman or senator or whatever, I don't know, politician said, oh well, you know, the owner of Parler is married to a Russian. There must be Russian... Cl- now the Republicans don't have anything to come back to that on because you know you had that Kim Klasik woman do the thing with the Chinese and then so it's I mean I like I I think I still think academia and media are the biggest causes of this because that's where you know the white lab coats come from that's where 
you know, your PhDs come from, oh, this PhD said this, listen to them. And I, I still think that that needs to be addressed. I think academia has a huge problem. And again, if you don't fix, if you don't fix your education system, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get good politicians. You're not going to get good reporters. You're not going to get good business people. You're not going to get, you know, it has a, a huge downstream effect. Yeah. You know, and now with K through 12, like, I, I don't see how teaching Black Lives Matter curriculum in New York City is not going to increase racism. I don't, you know. Well, and you know, the, I don't know if it was this, no, this is Mark's tweet. It wasn't yours, but you know, a conversation I was in, tagged in the other day was about um, kind of the evolutionary benefit of a short-term oppressive strategy for a long-term equality or something like that, right? So, like, there is a, a perfectly sane, perfectly rational case to be made for saying something along the lines of, and this is not necessarily my view, but I can make a good case for this, which is if we were to create some quote-unquote social inequality for the dominant group of people, the white people, et cetera, in the United States, right? Through teaching this curriculum and what have you, right? Notwithstanding any issues that might show up down the road for disenfranchised groups, right? Let's just assume that, it, you know, the idealistic Ibram Kendes of the world are completely correct. That if we promote some short-term oppression against the, the, the dominant group, that we can get some long-term equality among all groups and that everything is like better, essentially speaking. You can make a rational case for that because you can do some math and you can, you can adjust some predictive variables to figure out like what simple things could shift at the big picture level. The problem that I find with that in relation to what you just said is when you create more disparity, when you create more conflict, there are like physics, there's always an equal yet opposite reaction. There will always be. So even though the supposed dominant group who has all the privilege would just be inconvenienced for two decades or five decades or whatever it is, you will get the same kind of pushback as if they have been oppressed for 500 years. Because that is the natural human tendency, right? There is always an overreaction. There's no such thing as a kind of um, zero-sum game where one side wins, so to speak. It's really a zero-sum game where both sides continually lose, essentially. Yeah. Where everyone loses. No, and I, Okay, I was speaking to someone about this the other day, and I said, we're talking about reparations. So I said, okay, if you look at uh, things like the GI Bill, so soldiers coming back from, you know, World War II or black soldiers coming back from World War II in Korea. I don't know if it lasted until Vietnam with this, but they weren't getting the GI Bill so they couldn't get a college education so they couldn't improve yeah. themselves. That That has an effect on wealth, you know, wealth growth. Decades Redline, later. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know. It has fall-on effects. Um, redlining, not being yep. able to buy a house in the 50s, two generations down the road, you don't have, you know, there hasn't been wealth transferred for a few generations. That that causes so, you know, you can look at the Tanahasi Coates version or the Nicole Hannah Jones version, where I think they came up with a number of something like, like I said, I was speaking to someone the, the other day, it was like thirteen trillion dollars or so around there. It worked out to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person. Now, let's say we agreed that that was the number that had to be given out. Now, if you took that number 
and you went to, you know, black neighborhoods around the country. You invested that in small business loans. You invested that in education. You invested that in fixing up the neighborhoods. That does a tremendous thing to increase, you know, income for those people. It starts generating wealth. And if there's money left over after that, if you want to give that to people to, you know, you know, as a mortgage down payments or something, like I can understand a case for reparations in that kind of way. But if you do what Biden said and just say, they're like, okay, I'm just, again, he's just in the, he's just come in and I don't want to, you know, I don't like his, some of his executive orders that he just signed, but he had that speech and, or a segment of that speech and it was perfectly fine. He said, okay, we're going to fix poor, uh, poor neighborhoods, rural neighborhoods, you know, uh, we're going to work on restaurants. All that was great. But it's the first five seconds. He said, we're going to focus on black, Latino, Asian and Native American. Starting off, that's right away divisive. But if you say we're going to do all these things to all these neighborhoods, because there are plenty of poor neighborhoods in Appalachia that need a lot of help. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you work on, okay, we're going to fix these neighborhoods, but you pump more money into the neighborhoods of, let's say, Black people who were historically disenfranchised, and that has a long lasting effect. I think you'll have less resentment. I think that, you know, from the get-go, we're going to focus on this is the wrong, especially now is the wrong way to go about it because we've had this identity politics for so long. Yeah. I think that the identity politics approach has many limitations and backfires in a number of ways, which I think you and I would generally both agree on. And I think in addition to that, and even talking about money and redistribution of wealth and things like that, something that, I think has never really been publicly discussed a whole lot, but is really important to this conversation, especially around the concept of reality testing, because this goes back to being oriented to person, place, and time in, in, a, in a psychiatric sense. So applying that model to like socio-historical things, being oriented to person and, and time and, and place is very difficult, I think, for communities that are separate from and have had their, and I think this was Eric Weinstein who said this at some point, so I'm not going to take credit for it, but I think what he said generally was, imagine all the slaves who came here who had a variety of dialects, cultural norms, and values that were basically beaten out of you as you were brought to live in a new country and given one or two things you had to do and given a new language, a new set of values, and things like that. And the giant problem there that has not been addressed thoughtfully by anybody, in my opinion, either side or any speaker that I'm aware of, is how do we allow people the ultimate freedom to have their culture and their language and all the micro things that are extremely important, which we don't think of as important, so that they can integrate more fully. Because I think something that's never happened for many people from the African-American community who were come from a lineage of slavery, especially, is they never were able to bring over and reintegrate those important parts of their history and how they see themselves, their personhood, essentially, into the West, so to speak. And that's a serious problem because they still have parts of themselves that are fragmented, in my opinion which is why there's so much conflict, chaos, resistance of mainstream, et cetera. Like I, I can't think of, 
any other culture that um, is succeeding in the United States specifically if it's not allowed to actually integrate the things that are important and different about them into the greater ethos of what's happening here. Whereas other cultures that did come here and were allowed to eventually in integrate all their other values and, and et cetera, their cultural differences, the very micro things, they're doing fine in the United States. They're doing just fine. But many people that are of kind of slavery lineage never got to do those things. So there's still a substantial chunk of them that is disintegrated and lost and foreign. And if you feel like you're foreign in the land where you grew up, that is going to cause a lot of resentment, confusion, separateness, otherness, etc. And no one's talking about that. They're just talking about reparations. Oh, yeah. No, no. Okay. I, I agree with you. And I, I think... I think that might have been Brett Weinstein. I'm not sure, but I, 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 one I mean, what, either one of them, but yeah, but no, I, okay. I agree with that. Like if you, okay, I don't want to, I'm not trying to take away from slavery or anything. I'm not, you know, one of those people, oh, slavery was a good thing or whatever. No, no, it was horrible. And like, yes, they took, the, the cultures were wiped out and you can go back to Africa as well. And you can look at cultures that were wiped out due to Arab and European colonization, you know, oh, and yeah. like, and so there are people in Morocco and well, North Africa, the Amazigh, the Berbers, they lost their culture and they lost a lot of their language and they're in their, you know, quote unquote home countries. Yeah. And they've lost everything and they're slowly trying to regain it back now. And it's, it's, it's coming back. And I, I understand the importance of that. I don't know how you help someone rebuild their culture when, you know, 300 years past one of their ancestors were brought over on a slave, you know, on a slaving ship as a slave. And then another one ancestor was brought over, at the same time from another part of Africa and they ended up on, you know, so those two people had two distinct cultures. They were thrown together. Yeah. You know, they, like I, there's gotta be some, you know, things like Kwanzaa might've been a way to try to, you know, bridge that gap. I don't know, but either, you know, I like what Chloe Valdery does, like, you know, something like jazz jazz is a typically, you know, black American culture. And so yeah. is the blues. And yeah. that came from a mixture of all those things. Now I'm not saying yeah. okay, jazz is your only culture, but you know, the writings of James Baldwin or Langston Hughes or you know Frederick Douglass. I mean, you can consider that as part of Black American culture. Yeah, and and, and it sucks that you have to rebuild it from scratch because you know, like I said again, let's let's not sugarcoat slavery. It was it was an awful awful thing that was done, and yeah. you know, I get all that, but. A question of reparations, like I think the question of reparations should, you know, if you would just want to talk about giving people money, I think that's the wrong way to go around it. It's not going to help them. It's not going to do anything for them. The money's going to be gone, and the the underlying problems aren't going to be fixed. You're still going to have poor schools. You're still going to have, you know, lousy communities and whatnot. You know, not everyone's going to take that two hundred fifty thousand dollars they get and invest it in a business. Some of that's sure. going up some people's noses. <laughs> you know, like that's that's the way it's going yeah. to happen. Um, yeah, but. If you have a conversation, like let's say around reparations, which says, okay, we're going to give you the tools to help build up your community, just building up the community in itself, you can try to find a cohesive culture in that community. I mean, like, I think the way you talk about reparations has to, like, I don't want to focus on the, too much on the reparations thing, but I think like, if you were going to have that conversation, you can bring the culture part into the reparations conversation as well. It's not that you can give them back a culture, but you can try to help them see you know, 
what the American ideal was, you know, things that came out of the black communities, you know, wholly, like I said, like jazz or the blues and things like that, rock and roll, even, I mean, if it wasn't for jazz and blues, you wouldn't have had rock and rolling. So yeah. I mean, you can talk about things like that and say, you know, there isn't a black American culture, you know, it is a, for lack of a better term, Creole, I mean, Creole works better for languages, but it is like a Creole culture, right? It's a mix of everything. So when you're having a conversation about reparations, you can have that conversation at the same time. I think so. And I think it should be front and center along with some kind of, you know, um, reparations discussion. And what I would, what I'm really concerned about is people's and on every side of the spectrum, every ethnic background, et cetera. What I'm really concerned about is people's dramatic lack of understanding of the concept of revenge. A lot of people, whatever kind of victim you are, if you're the victim of sexual assault, if you're the victim of something more kind of aggressive in terms of like interpersonal relationships, verbal, et cetera, whatever the experience where you believe you've been wronged, our natural tendency is to want revenge. And it is very difficult for most humans, especially, you know, higher primates mm -hmm. to disentangle motivations because our motivational systems aren't particularly conscious in many cases. So like you may say, I want to do X because it will make things fair. Again, I love the word fair because fair is usually a really good tip off word. It's a good clue that someone's either talking about an ideal that's unachievable or about revenge sugarcoated some other way. And the problem with revenge is it's an instinct that was formed in the primordial soup of very small collective communities. So it worked really well when you had a tribe of eight or 12 or 20 people, right? A troop of baboons that's, you know, 10 large or whatever, like that is the ideal space for which revenge is useful because you're seeing a very clear social signal to the community about what is acceptable behavior or not. The problem we face is that we have all these nested games, these nested social cultures interacting with each other. And to try and send a group level revenge message to another group level, right? Of 330 million people. If, you know, 58 million people are African-American in this country and 85 or 95 million are Caucasian or whatever, or I don't know what the difference is, but like, it's like 16% of the population is, is African-American, if I recall correctly. So if that 16% is trying to get revenge, let's say, on the majority, that makes sense, evolutionarily speaking, and it's, it's perfectly reasonable to want some version of revenge. What's un- helpful given the complexity of the society that we currently function in is revenge at the tribal level always promotes continued conflict. So the question is, are you asking one group of people to submit and be okay and violate all of their natural instincts for revenge? Which I think if you were to ask some of the, you know, uh, talking heads on Twitter, they would say, absolutely. We are looking for you to be debased and feel less than, even though you may not have done anything right now to put us down historically or and or currently, right? Which is going to be very difficult for a large number of people to swallow, even though it may actually help in some way. That is a very difficult giant ask. 
And my concern is that revenge is one of those instincts that we don't really need in the same way we used to. And if we operate upon that in these very complex topics like racism and prejudice, we are going to be putting ourselves in a perpetual state of conflict. Back to the, the problem with conflict and cooperation. Yeah. Okay. The, the revenge thing. Now, again, maybe I warped my mind by reading all this stuff, but I spent a good 18 months or so just reading intersectionality and critical race theory and some, some Marcuse and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Back in university, I'd read a lot of Fanon. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but I'd read Fanon a, a bit. A little bit. And in his book, Wretched of the Earth, he talks about the retribution. He talks about how oppressed societies need to oppress their oppressor for an equal amount of time before they can not feel shame anymore. And I see a lot of that in stuff like Kendi. You know, positive discrimination is okay because if you're making up for past discrimination, you need discrimination now. Um, Okay, along that line, like affirmative action, I think affirmative action had a time and a place, like right after the Civil Rights Act, right after the Voting Rights Act. So when all the legal, the main legal hurdles were taken away in the States, I think affirmative action had a place. And it was only supposed to be a stopgap. But recently in your state, in California, they tried to re, you know, Prop 16, they tried to bring it back. You know, and that's, that's going to, again, you're looking at that and people look at the statistics and they can do this, make the statistics say what they want, but your know, white males are the least, the smallest number going into college, I think. Uh, you know, females are outnumbering males if you just want to look at females and males, but, you know, and I think black females are one of the largest growing college populations. I, I'm not saying that they're the majority, but they're the fastest growing. So, right. If you're telling someone from Appalachia, or you're telling someone from you know Pennsylvania, the the steel mill closed down, the coal mine's gone, or whatever, they haven't had, you know they haven't worked for a while. That, sorry, you're not going to go to college. You're not going to get a degree because, you know, we have to give your space to this black person because their family's been historically disenfranchised, and you've coming from a place of privilege. You know. That guy hasn't read Fanon. That guy's not going to think of it intellectually. He's going to say, "Screw you, my parent, you know, my dad hasn't worked in ten years. You know, yeah. we, we're like barely putting food on the table, and I was lucky enough to get accepted. But now you're telling me I can't go because of my skin color. I mean, that's that's going to create a revenge instinct in that guy. He's going to want revenge on the people who did that to him. Yeah, that's kind of my point. And and what I mean, in addition to all that too, is that. It is perfectly understandable to want to enact that new game, but it just it misses the complexity of how humans work at such. And because, again, our instincts are not designed for the more complicated social environment that we find ourselves in. The sociopolitical world we find ourselves in is far more egalitarian than has ever existed in history. And our instincts are designed for a much more adversarial way of functioning, generally speaking, because we're a very threat-sensitive species, right? We're literally hardwired, we're biologically built for that. So it's important to keep in mind how we're built and then how that is at a, at a kind of a disservice for where we're at. And I think something that's important is 
when we feel the need for revenge, what are we really going to accomplish short-term and long-term with it? And we're not really good at long-term thinking because we're not good at predicting long-term. Like there's this misconception that the social sciences are really all that um, scientific, number one, but number two, that they're actually good at predicting long-term outcomes, but they're really not essentially. So we have this delusion that we can really predict the future based upon what we know about how humanity works. And that's not true. So when I say like, we should be wary about our revenge instinct, I know I'm taking that with a grain of salt and I hope you take it with a grain of salt too. All I know is that we have a lot of history written down where we know exactly what happens when larger groups try to seek revenge on other larger groups. It maintains a perpetual state of conflict. If you don't believe me, you have to, you don't need to look any further than, you know, the tradition of, uh, the tradition of Chinese lineages, right? All the different dynasties and the way in which different dynasties handled different invaders over the course of uh, history, like the Mongols, etc. right? There are all these great examples from history across the world, right? If you look at the conflict in the Middle East, a perfect example of how revenge and honor culture has led to perpetual fighting for how many hundreds of years? Oh, pretty much 1400, like right after the death of Muhammad, that's when it all started. That's when the Shia Sunni split started was right after his death because it, it was a battle to take over who was the leader of the, of the Muslims. And so, you know, it's, it's been going on for 1400 years. Well, but even that, but like even between different religious sects, there have always been ex extensive battles, you know, extensive, extensive ongoing battles, right? And, and so it becomes a really complicated picture we're looking at of like, we want revenge, we need revenge, we think, but then is there another way of going about that, right? And this is, this is my argument for slow study progress which seems to have worked in the West in a very consistent way for a long time. And I think a lot of people are oh, acutely aware of their pain and want resolution to it right now. But back to what you said about shame and stuff, these revenge-based maneuvers do not resolve shame. Kendi needs to actually talk to a fucking clinical psychologist and like myself maybe, and actually learn outside of his own perspective what actually works to heal shame. Because there are, we have all sorts of like literature, we have all sorts of clinical wisdom around what helps for shame. And I'm very interested in like eliminating shame from any of our conversations about these things towards each other. Because shame is a toxic way that we operate with each other. And I don't want it. So what we need, I think, is a better understanding of shame and revenge and healing psychological pain. And I don't think people are interested because it's too much work to be that introspective. And you know, honestly, is the average person gonna spend that much time thinking about it? No, they're gonna do what's trendy. They're gonna go with their tribe. I'm on the tribe of Kendi. I'm on the tribe of James Lindsay. I'm on this tribe, that tribe, whatever tribe it is, right? And that's understandable because that's the convenient way of operating in especially the online world. And I think that's partially not helping and I think our misconceptions about how we work is not helping. And I think our lack of patience is not helping. And I also think that back to the point about like not integrating cultures thing, something that I think people don't understand because they don't read a lot of history is that it always takes an extended period of time for a culture, once they become recognized by the mainstream to fully integrate 
into a mainstream, whatever country they're in, right? So like I run an LGBT treatment facility, something that we talk about when we talk about the, L- the history of LGBT folks in the United States is that Stonewall didn't happen all that long ago, right? All these major events that are like historically notable in the LGBT community in the West are very new, right? Same thing with trans folks. Like the Harry Benjamin Society is a very young society for trans folks and transgender medicine and things of that nature. So something that we have to be patient with as a subculture within a a larger culture is the time it takes to integrate, to be accepted and understood by the larger culture, because it is human nature to resist with that which is foreign, right? Not that it should be, but that is generally speaking the case for the vast majority of people, because the vast majority of people are not that open-minded, right? Most people are average. So understanding that it takes some time for a dominant culture to integrate a subordinate culture, a smaller subculture or whatever, is something that's historically, like we have lots of precedent about how hard that is and how much time it takes. And people don't seem to understand that. As, as much as we think we're capable of more, we're not, in my opinion. No, I mean, we, again, I think we've talked about this before. It was one of your videos when you're talking about like slowing down. Yeah. And I think we've done a huge detriment to ourselves. I, you know, I, I was joking with someone. I said, uh, you know, that this, this, like all this stuff is the, the fault of uh, travel mugs because they're basically just sippy cups for adults. You've made everything so easy, right? Yeah. But, but we have done that. Like if you go online to uh, fill out an, you know, you know, you see commercials or whatever, you, you see ads online, oh, get car insurance. You can do it online in five minutes. You might want to take more than five minutes to look at your car insurance. <laughs> you know, maybe, just maybe. Or yeah. if you, call up uh you know for phone service or you call up your cable company and you, you they're they're reading through a checklist and they they want to get through it as quickly as possible i think we've i mean we've done a ourselves a huge disservice by making everything oh it's so easy you can get done so fast and you want everything done yeah. fast like i okay you mentioned james Lindsay. like i've seen people on it bug him saying well you need to tell us what critical race theory is and just give us one tweet so we can have a quick tweet we can tell people and he's like, no. He goes, look, I spent this time out of time reading this stuff, and it can't be put down in a one tweet. But they're looking for that one tweet. They're looking for that, you know, defund the police. They're looking for Black Lives Matter. They're looking for that one little thing to say, ah, this is critical race theory. We don't have the patience, to, you know. Okay, I had either for either luxury of time. Not everyone has that time, but you know, and I don't expect anyone to do the amount of reading I did. But at yeah. least you know, pick up white fragility or pick up how to be an anti-racist and just read it. And see where they're, you know, like, if you just read that chapter on white women's tears and white fragility, that should just scare you off the book right away and just say, okay, she's lost her mind. (laughs) What I would also argue is that if you're going to read those modern iterations of critical theory, you should also read the historical versions. Like, pick up some Adorno, pick up some Horkheimer, and actually know where this comes from. So you have a 360-degree view of this, because it's not just all the activist nonsense that you read nowadays. There's oh, no. something real. Okay. Uh, Derek Bell. I, I don't like, I'm not a huge fan of his and I can go through all, and I've read three of his papers and one of his books. Now, Derek Bell is arguably the founder of critical race theory. Now his, uh, his paper from 75 or 76, he brings up a very good point. I mean, he goes too extreme, but he said that, in Brown versus the Board of Education, they did not should not have de- desegregated schools. They should have desegregated education. 
which when you stop and think about that, that makes sense. You know, if they had done a better job of fixing the schools in the black neighborhoods instead of busing kids for two hours in one direction, you know, that would have done better to help those, those kids. It would have fixed those schools. It might've done something to fix up those communities. Then maybe, you know, kids in neighboring white communities might say, yeah, that's a good school. We don't have to bus our kids, you know, halfway across town. We can just bus them right over there to that school. And you might, you might've had not a forced integration, but a voluntary integration, which would have worked a lot better. You know, there, there is some, some of the stuff that's in the earlier writings of critical race theory, because it's based in law. I mean, Bell was a good writer. Crenshaw can write really well. Kendi, not so much. D'Angelo, not so much, <laughs> you know, but so I went back and, okay, I didn't go, like I said, I read a bit of Marcuse. I read a bit of uh, Gramersci, I, I can't pronounce his name. Okay. I haven't gone back and read Horkheimer and Adorno. I mean, all of this stuff was already, you know, mind numbing enough that, you know, I, I wanted to know what, I basically wanted to find out why I was being called a white supremacist for speaking out against Islam and where that was coming from. And it's coming from this stuff. And so I, you know, I started reading it, but no, I, I think people should read this. And I think people, but if I want to give them just one thing to read, to see how wacky it is, like where it's going now, like when you're looking in schools and you're teaching two kids in schools right now, in a lot of communities that white is being white is evil. White kids are oppressing everyone. And I think I sent you a picture of a book and it's being taught to kindergartners in Pennsylvania. And it says, you know, your contract to whiteness and it says, you know, it's, it costs you your soul. And it just says whiteness is a bad idea. And that's the kindergarten kids. You know, I want parents to read that book. So they can say, what the hell are you teaching my kids? You know, yeah. a parent won't have time to go back and read bell and read all this stuff. Yeah. You know, like, like to me, like that's, you know, I think this is more of your wheelhouse. Maybe I'm, you know, I, this is my pop psychology or whatever, but this is anti CBT. You know, it's, 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 it's the opposite of co cognitive behavioral therapy. It's teaching kids how to be vengeful. It's making little white kids ashamed of themselves. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not a good recipe for, for healthy adults. I think that if, if the lack of thoughtfulness, which we see in a lot of these writings, a lot of these people implementing these ideas is really systemically the case, then yeah, we are promoting a culture that is anti-thoughtful and is anti, um, it's anti-self-reflective in particular, which is problematic because um, you make people psychologically weak if they don't have the capacity to make sense of in their head what's happening. If you are told that you should operate based on automatic assumptions, then you're basically implying to people that your critical thinking facilities are less important and your automatic allegiance to these ideas is what will allow you to kind of effectively operate socially, which, you know, most of the time, people are not very thoughtful about how they operate in the social world. It's just not worth your cognitive resources to do so. Most people are not particularly conscientious. They're not particularly open-minded, so they're not interested. However, um, it's this, this stuff is being sold as being conscientious, like race-conscious and class-conscious and stuff like that. And it's propaganda for the most part. And propaganda is a normal part of human behavior in complex social systems. 
but it's propaganda that can have downstream negative consequences. So I think our main job, uh, at least the way I see it for myself is my main job is role modeling thoughtfulness and taking the time to consider things without being dismissive, which I know um, is not uh, viscerally pleasurable for pretty much anyone. The viscerally pleasurable thing to say is you're a racist or you're saying something stupid or you're shooting yourself in the foot or have you all that, all that it makes perfect sense. Like I would love nothing more to be able to talk to some of these people and tell them they're idiots. But the problem is that's going to be so counterintuitive to the solution we want to achieve together. Cause I think the, the, the spirit of this needs to be, we need to achieve something together to fix the issue. Um, not you are writing this book, so you're going to fix the problem or you're giving this talk. So you're going to fix the problem. It needs to be, we are collectively going to be responsible for thinking through this carefully together, as opposed to um, adhering to a narrative together. I think the attitude, if we choose to take it on, is how do we think through this carefully together? And that's not very sexy. There's no yeah. slogan to get behind there. Yeah. No, it's, and I think that's another thing too, like the, 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 the slowing down stuff. We just, everyone wants that slogan, right? Oh, yeah. Biden's like, oh, we're going to, you know, unity. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage your, your unity, um, your pretty <laughs> unity thing, but, but like, no, but um, you know, the way Biden talks about it. And again, yes, the, the America is incredibly divided. You need someone to try to bridge those gaps. Yeah. But okay. He's the president now. He's the leader of the Democrats. You know, maybe tone down some of the you know the more extreme ones who are saying hunt down every republican you know hunt down every trump voter lock them all away you know, if people on on the republican side see him reigning in the more extreme on his side you know if biden starts reigning in the more extreme on the democrat side you'll see maybe you'll see leadership on the republicans say you know what we'll rein in our nuts too I think, I mean, and everyone's going to say, well, they have to do it because they're the ones who stormed the Capitol. I mean, you know what? Biden's the leader. Let him show some leadership. Someone's got to take the first step here. And I think him as the president, it would be nice for him to say, or I shouldn't say nice or whatever, but it, I think it would be a good first step for him to say to the extreme people on his side. Yeah. You know, can you cut that out? Because this is not helping. Yeah, that would be great. And the problem is, is that, I don't think that there are incentives, you know, in the kind of game theoretical sense. I don't think that there are incentives to reign in any side. I think that the incentives are to maintain a certain level of conflict for the sake of promoting a power differential in the grand scheme of things. And I wish that weren't the case, but I think we are currently, thanks to media, thanks to corporate interests, thanks to lobbyists, et cetera, we are currently incentivized, polit politicians are currently incentivized systemically to maintain the combative approach to each other, Ir irrespective of your position in the government. I don't know, like, you know, again, I, I'm not trying to put the blame on the Democrats or the Republicans here, like educationally, and I think the underlying thing is our education system got corrupted and we need to fix that so that you're producing better adults coming out. I think that's, that should be the main goal. There's, 
you know, I equate it to Islam in a way. You went out to fight ISIS, you know, but until you fix those madrasas, there's going to be extremists coming out. And, you know, so we need to get to the underlying, you know, I'm not trying to equate Democrats or Republicans with ISIS here. I just, you know, like, should I say, like, if you go after the extreme, but you don't fix what's causing the extreme, you're never going to get rid of the extreme. Um, yeah. I just want to, one last thing, because I don't want to keep you too, too long. Uh, I mentioned CBT. I've been yeah. speaking to a couple of people about this. Again, I'm, you know, pop psychology, if I'm completely full of it, let me know. Yeah. But from my understanding, CBT was set up so that it would give you the tools to help you, you know, battle your problems. You know, if you're anxious, it will help you deal with your anxiety. It was, it wasn't so much the psychologist or the therapist is going to help you. It's CBT was a, a, a set of tools to help you deal with it yourself. So you can kind of confront it. Um, I don't know if I got that right or if that's. Well, I mean, all theoretical orientations in the world of clinical psychology are in some way, shape or form designed to help you become the solution to your problems. Many of them have different mechanisms. So cognitive behavioral therapy, what you're calling CBT, um, is just a specific theoretical model that orients the practitioner and the patient in a more collaborative relationship compared to in a more kind of uh, egalitarian relationship compared to the the prior dominant model which was the kind of the psychoanalytic psychodynamic model so it really is just kind of a reaction to that that it's more collaborative but irrespective of that yes cbt cognitive behavioral therapy does allow the person after a number of sessions hopefully if you're doing it right to have enough understanding of how your mind works and enough understanding of how cognitive distortions work, how um, emotion regulation works, et cetera, that you can learn enough metacognition, enough self-reflection, enough uh, self-awareness that when you are aware, you can in, like intervene on yourself, so to speak, more effectively than before you showed up in therapy. It's not always the case that happens for people. Uh, some people are dramatically lacking in insight, right? I mean, it's just the case that some people are more or less insightful, so they need more or less help uh, from the outside world, more or less of a prefrontal cortex from the outside world, so to speak. But that also doesn't take into account like temperament. And I think we could probably talk about this all day. But in, in short, I would say yes. The idea in CBT is you eventually learn how to manage your problem mental health issues more effectively on your own to the point where you really don't need substantive intervention by a professional. That being said, uh, for most mild to moderate cases of anxiety, depression, et cetera, yeah, you can basically take care of yourself for extended periods of time and you don't need clinicians for very long, if at all. Whereas for severe cases of major depression, uh, psychosis, you know, PTSD, et cetera, you're gonna need more intensive intervention. So CBT is great, especially for mild to moderate cases of many conditions, even though the theoretical underpinnings and, and how it actually works mechan mechanistically is not so well known. But there was an article I just retweeted yesterday or the day before. There was a giant review done to figure out what were the mechanisms of change for CBT. So they can all check that out on my Twitter if they want. Okay. No, I mean, like the reason I also brought it up is because like I said it, it is kind of a toolkit, but if at the same time you're taught something like, um, you know, okay, keep, 
keep toxic people out of your life. I have no problem with that. You know, you don't want, no, but you don't want people who are, you know, always down or always attacking you. You don't want them in your life. It doesn't do right. But if you've taught kids or, you know, young adults or, you know, teenagers that, you know, the, the way they're dealing with, um, you know, whatever they call white supremacy now, all these kind of things. Oh, it's okay. Like, you know, uh, get that person banned off Twitter or get that person, you know, like we're going to fire this, this, we want to get this professor fired. We want to, you know, uh, that young girl, when she was 14, she, she said the N word and the little kid saved another 14 year old saved the video. And then when she applied to college, he's like, aha, you know, put the, you know, if you're taught the wrong tools and you start something like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, therapy, sorry, your toolkit might have the wrong tools in it to deal with. So it's like, okay, I need to deal with people who are being racist in my life. And now you might've been taught that you uh, asking someone, Oh, where are you really from? Or saying, Oh, you speak English well to an immigrant. That's racism. And then that person just says, okay, you're toxic. I'm going to kick, cut you out of my life. If someone comes in for therapy, like how do you get them to not focus on that kind of stuff? Because I mean, they're learning one thing in school and they're going into, or they've learned it in school or they're learning it off social media. They're learning it you know, by osmosis through the culture and they come into your office. Like, how do you teach them that that's the wrong way? Like, it, like, is there a kind of resistance to that? Or like, is there a way to push back to that? Or, I mean, that's a very big question. So I think it would probably take an hour to answer it thoughtfully. <laughs> However, I can, I can give you a couple of things. And let me start with the example of, uh, the 14 year old who said the N word and then the guy who sent out the clip when she was applying to college or whatever. So in that case, I don't think that that is a deficit of like healthy coping skills or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that is a clear example of the classic tribalistic revenge. Like if I make an example of you and I get you in a short circuit, your ability to function that will send you a message that you won't do that bad behavior again. And it will send a broader social message probably because again, with how primitive we are and how we're built, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I don't think there are any cognitive distortions at play from a clinical psych sense in that person's thought process. I think his reasoning is spot on, even though I disagree with how productive it will be in the macro scale I do believe 100% to achieve the goal that he wants to achieve, he's crushing it. And he did it exactly right. I don't believe that it is productive in the macro, but I can't say that he's wrong. I can say that it's not considered of that particular person's well-being, her capacity to change, but that's not the goal of revenge. The goal of revenge is to correct a power imbalance. It's not to help the person who offended you grow, right? And that's the thing we have to keep in mind, first and foremost. So when I see someone in my office who is interested in power games, I first have a very frank conversation with them about their relative goals in life and the way in which this interest in power games, whether it be via social justice or conservatism or whatever, how that matches with that. Because most people's goals as just regular people are not to keep engaging in in an ever going, like ongoing war. Most people's goals are very small and very straightforward. Like 
I want to have a good job and I want to have a good this and da 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 right? Typical Western stuff. So I try to have a very honest conversation about like, okay, so what are the ways in which this ongoing conflict thing you're interested in interfere with those goals? Because your values and your goals are going to drive you far more than any rational thing I could convince you of, right? So I always try to make it about the person's intrinsic motivation for what they consider a good life for them, right? And I try to not have anything prescriptive about that. I just try to help them find the intrinsic motivation to live a better life. Because at the end of the day, um, it may be the case that you still are very much interested in the culture war and winning the fight. But if I can do something to boost your mental health in other ways around that, then I will do that with you, irrespective of my agreement with your particular goal in the culture war. I try to not make it anything about me or anything about how I believe it's most effective because it's not my life, it's your life. Um, which, you know, non-clinicians, that's not the shtick. The shtick is like, I'm gonna fight you to death, essentially. But for me, because of my position and my ethical responsibility, even though I'm not doing therapy on Twitter, I do think it is wise, at least for me, because of how I'm built and what I do and what I know, to try and replicate what works about therapy with the folks on Twitter in terms of being non-directive, focusing on intrinsic motivation, and being clear about the problems of revenge and all these instincts which we have minimal real awareness of and understanding of how to work with effectively in a modern environment. And I think when cognitive distortions do show up about like race or prejudice, like I have a couple of patients who have some of them. So I try to kind of gently help them understand um, uh, what information they have, what that source is. And one of the things I do is I provide opportunities to kind of see other points of view, other data. And um, if they're interested, they're interested. If they're not, they're not. And I, I do not see it as my role to correct mis information about race, religion, sexuality, or anything of that nature. I see it as my role to understand, to decrease shame, to decrease defensiveness, and to help the person live what they consider a good life. That's kind of how I see it. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay. I, I get that. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, obviously if someone comes into you for therapy, like if I came into you for therapy and you were just berating me, I think I'd go find another doctor. <laughs> Well, right. And, but the sad thing is, is that there are ideologically possessed therapists that exist. There are many, 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 like one of my, um, one of the folks that I supervise, um, you know, his therapist is a little ideologically possessed. And we talk about that. I'm just like, you know, if you understand why she's that way, or if you understand blah, 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 what's going on, cool. But if it becomes offensive at some point or off-putting, like you, you can switch, right? There's, it's LA. There's a therapist. There's 10 therapists every square mile. So <laughs> You know, you can spit and hit one. Um, but yeah, I mean, like my goal is to never let my beliefs or my personal uh, preferences impact the quality of what I do with my patients. It's not to say that they don't show up. It's just to say that um, I think it's the most respectful thing to make the focus of them and their values and their beliefs and try to work within them in a way that I know alleviates suffering. That's really how I see it. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming back on. If you want to let know people, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, go ahead, and then I'll put that in the link. Okay, great. So it is my pleasure to be here. We always have a good chat, and I think the best place for y'all to find me is on Twitter. My handle is at psych p lockwood p s y c h p lockwood, and the other place you can find me is on minds.com, 
And I think it's Dr. Patrick Lockwood is my handle. Um, Minds for me is mostly shit posting and memes, but uh, Twitter is actually serious dialogue where I'll talk to anyone about anything. So if you're looking to laugh, I mean, I do some of that on Twitter too, but if you're looking to laugh, find me on Minds. If you're looking to actually talk like a, a regular person, find me on Twitter and we'll have some fun. Great. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.